son of John. Life, life in his name? Is that what it's called? Is that what's on the cover? <laughs> um, I'm so excited. I see a lot of um, returning faces. A lot of you that, that did Isaiah and actually came back. So that's like really exciting. That was a tough one. It's a lot of work. Um, and uh, this one will be really different. I like going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There'll actually be a lot of tie-in. Uh, but I also see a lot of new faces, and that makes me really, really excited. So um, we are going to have a really good time. I'm going to start out talking about the workbook, okay? So this, I actually wrote this 10 years ago. And when I thought I, I really want to teach a gospel, I want to teach John, I pulled this out and I looked through it, and I was like, is it, would it still be something I would be willing to put my name on today? Because a lot of things I said 10 years ago, I would not <laughs> you just learn and grow. And um, it's actually really, really well researched. It's a different format. I kind of had a, um, a paradigm shift probably about, I don't know, five years ago where I kind of shifted from um, when I write these workbooks, a lot of, I used to write a lot of my own words, and now I write a lot of questions. So I, I really prefer to have you get in the text on your own, answer questions, um, this is not like that. There's actually very few questions in here. There's a lot of commentary, um, and it will guide you through marking up your own Bible, or if you want to print out the book of John, you can mar mark that up. So, um, so it's different. If you've done Isaiah or the few other past studies that I've done, it's different. If you hate answering all those questions, you are going to love this book. It's going to be your jam. You're going to love it. All right, now, this was... I mean, I thought it was really pretty 10 years ago. I do not still think it's, it's not my favorite anymore. So she has a new outfit. All right, that's what this is for. So you're going to open this. This has three holes. I wouldn't open it right now because then you have loose papers going everywhere. But you're going you're gonna to dig a binder out of the cabinet or go to Walmart and get one, put it in a binder, and then this goes in the little, like, in the front, like, sleeve. All right, so you have a nice little cover for it. Now, one thing that's kind of going to be fun is there are not very many things, but there are a few things in here that I've changed my mind on. None of them are like doctrinal essentials or anything like that, but um, yeah, so I think that'll be fun as well, because every week I'll be like, I used to think this, and now I think this, and that's a really important. Like, if you're studying anything, and you go 10 years, and you don't change your mind about anything, you're probably not learning. You're probably just in an echo chamber listening to the same old thing over and over and over, <laughs> okay? So I think that'll be kind of fun is to pull out, well, yeah, I don't think that anymore. Even tonight, I'll have a couple of things to throw out to you. So any questions about this, um, the, the basics? So I'll give you an introduction tonight. You'll go home and start working through. Um, it's divided into five days of homework each week, and there's instructions in there. <laughs> there's a bio that's 10 years old. I had a one child who was two at the time. I now have a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. So a lot has changed. Um, I don't write. At, I think there's a web address there. I don't, I don't do that anymore. So anyway, um, throw out the first few pages, I guess, and then, and then you'll get to the good stuff. All right? But this will take you through the book of John on your own during the week. If you don't get the homework done, it does not matter. We don't have time to discuss it on Wednesday nights anyway, so nobody will know. So it's just there... It's just there for you if you, if you want to get more out because I can't cover every single thing in, in these, these sessions. We only have 10 of them. So, all right? So that's your, your workbook there. All right. Well, I am going to go ahead and, and pray. We have a – I'm going to get you out. Sylvia, can you remind me? What time do I have to be done? I forgot. Eight? Like 7.50, right, for the – to get over to child care. Okay. All right, so I, um, I like to keep these lectures, lectures, lessons, like 45, 50 minutes. I went, I just got so excited on Tuesday. I went a little longer, so we'll see. But I'll make sure you are out of here um, by 7.50 so you mamas can get over to um, the kids' area and get, get your kiddos. If you don't have kids, you can hang out as long as you want until they kick you out, you know, because they're locking the doors. All right? Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for um, just the, 
the beautiful thing that happens when we gather together and open your word and feast on your word. And um, I also love being by myself and knowing that I can, I can commune with you as I read my Bible and as I pray. But there's something really, really special about being with other believers and something special about being with other women. And so, God, I pray that as we, um, as we start to just kind of dive into the book of John tonight, I pray that you, through the work of your spirit, would open our eyes to see things that we need to see and hear what we need to hear, and that you would grant us soft hearts to respond to the truth that you are going to show us as we walk through um, this incredible gospel, this good news of, of you uh, sending your son into this world to redeem us and love us and call us your own, and um, we just thank you for that story, and we give you this time that we have tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to know, by show of hands, how many of you have been snorkeling? Snorkelers, who's, who's been snorkeling? All right, quite a few. I feel like if you've been on a cruise, it's like the one semi-affordable, like, activity to do <laughs> at the ports of call. Um, so, yes, snorkeling, you guys kind of, even if you haven't been snorkeling, you, you know the drill. You get the mask, and it has the tube, and uh, you kind of, you skim the surface, and um, pretty, pretty simple. Depending on where you are, you, you can see some pretty amazing things, even skimming the surface, right? Like, uh, if you're in Cancun, or if you're in, I don't know where else the amazing snorkeling is, but um, there are certain places you can really... Um, you, can, you can really see a lot. However, there are some limitations with snorkeling, right? So you're snorkeling along, let's say you see something really amazing way, you know, way over there. You can dive down and, and get a closer look. You can't stay very long. And you better remember when you come back up that you've got a tube that's got water in it. I don't know if you guys ever made that mistake. I tend to forget. I'm like, you got to blow all that stuff out before you take a breath, right? <laughs> so there's some limitations. You can't go too deep, and you can't stay too long. Um, and so if you, if you really, really, really want to explore the ocean, you want to be an ocean explorer, what do you need? A tank, oxygen, scuba gear, right? You need scuba gear, and you you need to go to a class and learn how to use it, right? Because, you know, you could die if you don't use that stuff right. Uh, but, yeah, you, 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 need, you need a scuba gear. Um, and I bring those images up to you because most of us in our engagement with the Bible, we, we snorkel, right? We're, 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 we're skimming the surface. Um, our devotional books are designed this way. Um, our Bible reading plans, I, I know I try and fail every year to read the Bible in a year, right? <laughs> but that's pretty quick. You're just reading through. Um, even our Sunday morning sermons, I mean, we got some great preaching here. That's like 30 minutes, right? You, you know, it's like, I'm always like, oh, poor guy, you got to cover all this stuff in 30 minutes, right? So, um, and, and, and can we see a lot that way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we can. And that's incredible incredibly beneficial. We should always be skimming the surface constantly of God's word and seeing what we can discover. But there needs to be um, spaces where we can put on the scuba gear and we can start to go deep. And we can start to say, okay, look at that, that one word. Let's hang out with that one word for a while. And let's tra chase it down. And what does it mean? And, and what themes are emerging? And, and so that's what this is. So you probably can't put on the scuba gear in the 15 minutes you have in the morning before you're off to work or off to your thing. You probably can't put on the scuba gear on Sunday morning when it's got a 30-minute sermon and then you're serving in different places. And, but we can come on Wednesday nights and for a good 45 minutes we can put on the scuba gear and we can, we can go deeper into the book of John than we otherwise uh, normally would. So that's what I do. I am your scuba instructor, all right? We are going to put on the scuba gear, and we are going um, to go deeper. Don't let that scare you. I'm very passionate about making this accessible. So whether you are uh, a long time, you've, you've done to like a 1,000 Bible studies, or you have never cracked your Bible open ever, you're going to get something, all right? 
but I'm also very passionate about treating women as though they have a brain and want to use it when they study the scriptures because a lot of our things written for women, I think that's kind of lost on them. Like we just want like cute little stories and I don't know. Amen, hallelujah, and recipes. <laughs> I do like those Bible studies with recipes. I have made some of those. They are really good. Um, so anyway, we are gonna, we're going we're gonna to scuba dive, but we're also going to have a lot of fun along the way um, because there is nothing about the person and work of Jesus that is boring. And um, I'm really, really excited about, about what we're going to cover. All right, before we get going, I do need to talk to you about your handouts tonight. So you have this one, very basic. I'm going to start out talking about kind of what makes the Gospel of John unique. So there's four Gospels. John is, is one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we're going to talk about what makes it unique. We're going to talk a little bit about the purpose of John's Gospel. And then this is really the big mamma jamma that we're going to spend most of our time in. This is John's prologue. It's the first 18 verses. So you might want to have your Bible open to John chapter 1. Um, but this is really, you know, if, if you don't have your Bible, or th- this, it's all here. And I will explain this beautiful structure as we go on. All right? All right, so let's start out talking about some of the unique features of John's gospel. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called, if you're reading any kind of, excuse me, commentary or higher level Bible teaching stuff, they're called the synoptic gospels. And that is spelled S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic literally means together sight. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke together see the life and ministry of Jesus with a common view, all right? So there are differences between those three, but they cover many of the same events in the same general order, so there's a lot of overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels. John does not get to go to that party. He is not a synoptic, it's not a synoptic gospel. It kind of stands all on its own because it is so different than those other three gospels. So here's some just quick, because I want to get to the text, but some quick differences that I think will be helpful for you to know before we dive in. Number one, John leaves out a lot of the material that is characteristic of the other three gospels. So when you're reading through John, you're not going to see any parables, or you're not going to read any parables. There is no casting out of demons, which is something very common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, There is no record of Jesus' temptation, and there's also not a record of Jesus' transfiguration. So you have some of these, like, really important events in the life of Jesus that are not included in the book of John. On the flip end, John's gospel contains quite a bit of material that isn't mentioned in the other three. So they have a lot of material John doesn't mention, and John has a lot of material that the synoptics don't mention. Um, Some of this includes the the wedding at Canaan when he turned water into wine. That's exclusive to John. Uh, The conversations with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Only John has those. And then I think the most significant is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is huge, right? It's only in the Gospel of John. So, uh, so that's, that's the first difference, is just what's included um, in John's Gospel. Second important difference um, is that John is not as concerned with a chronological arrangement of events. Uh, one of the very first stories that you're going to come across this week when you start reading John is the cleansing of the temple, Now, if you're familiar at all with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that comes at the end of those Gospels. It's actually one of the big turning points in the story where it pivots from the the ministry of Jesus to he cleanses the temple, he throws out the money changers, um, and then, like, everybody gets so mad that it leads right to his arrest and his crucifixion. It's kind of the last straw. Well, John puts it first. And this is one thing you'll read if you do the workbook. Um, I propose in this that it must have happened twice because that's something that you'll find in the commentaries. Well, it must have happened at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. Now that I've, I've read and studied and understand John's purpose and his mindset a little better, I think that's a really silly explanation, actually. Um, it didn't happen twice. Um, John is wanting to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the new temple, 
right? Because Jesus drives out those money changers, and then John, and then he starts to have this conversation. He's like, tear down the temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? It took us 40 whatever years to build this temple. And he's like, I'm talking about my body, right? And, and so John puts that first because John wants that to be a priority. So John's not trying to give us the, the security camera footage of Jesus' life. He has arranged his gospel thematically. We're going to get some flow of events. We're going to get some time cues. But for the most part, he's wanting to arrange um, his gospel in a little, with a little bit of a different, um, a different in, interest in mind. All right, number three, third difference. And this is my favorite one. And this is why John is my favorite gospel. All right? John has designed his narrative with multiple layers of meaning that the reader can discover by repetitive reading and meditation throughout the whole of his or her life. Now, any part of scripture is going to have multiple layers of meaning, but John in particular has, has just so artistically arranged his gospel um, so that what's on the surface is never all that's happening. All right. I have a quote for you on your listening guide um, by Richard Hayes in his book, Echoes of Scripture and the Gospels. And I, I love it so much that I put it on your listening guide, but I want to read it um, and, then, and then talk about it a little bit. It says, John has condensed the traditions of Jesus' healing and miracle-working activity down to a few selected episodes that are given more extended development than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So also, John has uncluttered his narrative from, for example, Matthew's 124 quotations and allusions to the Old Testament, and is focused on a smaller number of scriptural intertexts. So talking about connections between the Old and New Testament. But each one that does appear is given proportionately greater gravity as a pointer to Jesus' identity. If Luke, for example, is the master of the deft, fleeting illusion, John is the master of the carefully framed, luminous image that shines brilliantly against the dark canvas and lingers in the imagination. John's narrative technique is analogous to the visual artistry of Rembrandt's portraits. He is not attempting to compile the maximum number of Old Testament illusions. Rather, he prefers to focus on singular artistically selected instances that repay sustained meditation and relies heavily upon evoking images and figures from Israel's scripture. All right, so that's what I want you to do. I think Richard Ray's comparison of the book of John to Rembrandt's paintings is pretty genius, very, very helpful. So I want you, make sure you're on the public Wi-Fi here, otherwise you'll get absolutely nothing because the internet's terrible. <laughs> um, make sure you're on the public Wi-Fi. And I just want you to look up Rembrandt's paintings because this is really uh, just a great way to think of John. And Rembrandt has a D, like it's A-N-D-T uh, paintings. And just click on like your images there and just scroll through and kind of, um, kind of look at a few of them there. And what you'll notice is that in almost every image, and one of my favorites, if you come across this, um, the storm on the Sea of Galilee is a great illustration of this. All right, so in almost every image, you have, you have this spotlight effect. You guys notice that on your, on, you know, whether it's a portrait or something like this, there's like this light. And Rembrandt was, was thought of as the master of, of light. And so he'll have this spotlight um, come down. It's obvious that Rembrandt cared very deeply where in that painting the light fell so that the person observing the painting is meant to sit and, and stare at it and ponder why did he put the spotlight there? And what's really interesting is this, like for instance, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, there's actually more going on in the dark than there is in this light spot. And so you've got to like really look at, you've got to look really hard. Like what, what is going on in the back? Why would he put the light where he put the light? And so it's only after really sitting and observing and, and, and then talking to other Rembrandt nerds and, and what they think and what, what they want. And then going to the library and maybe buying a, getting a books on, on Rembrandt and, and studying what other people have written. It's after a long contemplation that you really start to uncover 
the, the, the meaning and, and what Rembrandt is trying to say in the placement of the little spotlight in the painting. And, and that is very much um, analogous to, to John's gospel. It works a lot like that. He is intentionally illuminated very carefully, not very many, actually very few works of Jesus um, and, and speeches of Jesus. And, and we are supposed to sit on the museum bench, so to speak, and stare at those portraits over and over and over again. And every time we do, we are going to peel back another layer of significance. So again, there's no video camera footage here. John has given us a collection of Rembrandts so that what's happening on the surface is never all that's happening. And so that's what, for me as a Bible teacher, like makes John so fun to teach. And we're going to start to see that even, even tonight, what, I, what I'm talking about here. Um, but as you're thinking, okay, what's going on? Like, I, I just, for me, that, that image in the comparison to Rembrandt's was really helpful. Look where the spotlight, what is John putting the spotlight on? And, and think about why. Why this story? Why this speech? Why these images? What is he trying to communicate? And every time you ask that, you'll uncover a different layer in it. It's really super fun. All right, let's take a look at John's purpose in writing. Um, what's really cool about the book of John is that he tells us exactly what his purpose in writing is. You can either turn to uh, John 20, 30, and 31 in your own Bible, or I have, I have it written out there on your listening guide. All right, so John chapter 20 is at the end of the gospel. He's told all the stories, and now he says what his purpose is. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, kind of connected to this are the very last words of the gospel. Um, chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. And I, I love this verse. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself would contain the books that would be written. So is John aware that he has left a lot out? Is he aware of that? Very aware of that. He tells you, I, I've only selected a few things. And, and, and he did it on purpose. He's saying, I've selected these few things so that you will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, which is a divine title, and that by believing in him, you might have life. And that word life for John has so many dimensions. It's like a multifaceted diamond, and we're going to get to unpack some of those as we go through. So John is not trying to report the life of Jesus as some, like, unbiased journalist. He has a very clear agenda, and it is that we might believe that Jesus is who he says he is, who, who the scriptures declare him to be, and then have the eternal, abundant life that, that can come only through him. So, you ever find yourself wondering why this story, why this, this speech, why is it told in this particular way? Keep going back to John 20, 30, and 31. That's the grid we always need to be reading all these stories from. That's what he's trying to do. All right. One thing I love about the book of John is it includes, it comes with a thorough introduction. Like a lot of times as a Bible teacher, I have to kind of like comb through the whole book and try to find themes and and, and let you know what to be looking for. Well, John does that for us. It has a prologue built in, and that's in John chapter 1, verse 1. So this is where you're going to take this piece, all right? And we're going to start working through John's prologue. When I was a kid, my mom, who is here, I told her the other night, I was like, you know, you don't always have to come to my Bible study just because you're my mom. I, I, you know, and she's like, I like your Bible study. I was like, okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> anyway, she's right here. Raise your hand, raise your hand. All right, so when I was a kid, uh, my mom, like all of the moms in the 80s, 
was really into cross-stitching. It was the, the jam, like everybody cross-stitched. Um, and, and so I remember she had this tin full of all her, like her cross-stitch threads. And when she would start a new project, she would pull the thread she needed out of that and she would like put it in a little, another thing and then she'd have her, her threads. So I, I reached out to her this week and I was like, do you still have your cross-stitch threads? And from the 1980s? And she's like, no, I got rid of those. I was like, that's very healthy. I'm glad you got rid of those, okay. <laughs> but you guys, my mother-in-law came through. <laughs> now she's actively crafty. So this probably isn't from the 1980s. She probably like uses threads, you know. But anyway, she, she gave me her box of threads. All right, and um, the reason I bring that up to you is one, what kind of Bible teacher am I if I don't have a cheesy like object lesson? But two, think of John's prologue as he, he's taking out, he's showing us what threads he's going to be weaving into this portrait of Jesus that he is about to, to show us, all right? And so I have some threads here that I've labeled that coincide with what we're going to see in the prologue. And so we're going to see, like, okay, what are the threads we need to be looking for as, as, we're, as we're going through? And if one of you wants to, like, take these threads and create a portrait of Jesus, that would be so rad. But I don't know if anybody does that anymore. So my mother-in-law was actually like, you really should. I was like, who, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I don't craft. I, I keep all the Etsy shops open. I buy the crafts. I don't do the crafts. So anyway, all right, well, let's dive in. All right, the first thing you need to know about this right here, this prologue, is that it is a carefully crafted poem. Now, the Bible was originally, or the New Testament was originally written primarily in Greek. It's been translated into English for us. And so a lot of times what's lost in translation are these poetic structures because it just doesn't, a lot of times the, the rhythm doesn't translate into a different language. Um, but if it's more obvious in a Greek text um, that this is a poem, verses 1 through 18. So it has a very uh, beautiful poetic structure to it, um, you, and, and go ahead and just look at the structure with me. So you have the first four lines form an opening, and then I have six, uh, these would be strophes, which is a fancy word for a section of a poem, all right? So there's three that are in the Genesis creation column, and then there's three more. Uh, they actually mirror the first three. They're in the Exodus incarnation column. And then you have four lines of a closing. If you're like me and you love symmetry and balance and everything to be, you, this isn't like rock your world, all right? This isn't like your brain is going to love this. It's like so symmetrical, so balanced, so beautiful, all right? Um, so let's go ahead and, and just dig in. Let's see, make sure. All right, so in the beginning, in the beginning, that ring a bell? Where else do those words appear in Scripture? Genesis chapter 1, and if you're sitting in your chair and you're like, I had no idea that that was somewhere else in Scripture, that's okay. A lot of the women in here have been studying the Bible for a really long time, and we all have to start somewhere. All right, but that is how the Bible opens. Very first page, very first words, in the beginning. So what John is doing just right out the gate is he's taking us all the way back to creation to communicate some very important things about the main character of his gospel, who we'll see as Jesus, right? Um, he is telling us right out the gate that the story he's about to tell is just as important and foundational as Genesis chapter 1. And that's a big claim. That's a big claim. Um, and he's also indicating there that what he's saying is a continuation of Genesis chapter 1. Um, if you've been with me a while, you know that I am really big on um, helping us see how the, the whole Bible is one big story that points us to Jesus. So whether you're in the Old Testament, it's more obvious in the New Testament, but all of it is pointing at us to Jesus. So John is saying, actually, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, ultimately is pointing us to the main character of this gospel. All right, so in the beginning was Jesus. Is that what he says? In the beginning was Jesus. The word. Huh. That's interesting. He's actually not going to mention the name of Jesus. I think not until like, I don't know, verse 17 or something. 
So he introduces Jesus as the word, all right? So we're, we're, we're going to need to think, okay, well, why, why, why? What's the significance of the word? Now, when we were doing our Isaiah study, I talked to you about how the Bible is hyperlinked, much like a website. So if you go to a website, think Wikipedia, right? So there's certain words in that entry that are going to be highlighted. And you know if you click on it, it's going to take you to another web page where you get more information. And then you click on something there, it's going to take you to another web page. And so everything's connected. That's why it's called the internet. It's a network of pages that connect together, right? Well, the Bible's like that. And there are certain words that are going to connect from one page back to another page in the Bible, from one book of the Bible back to another book of the Bible. And so it's, it's, it's all this interconnected network of of verses. So the word is one of those hyperlinked phrases. And it actually takes you back to some key um, Old Testament passages. One of the really important ones is Genesis chapter 1. We don't have time to read it, but if you are, if you've been around the church very long, you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you're very familiar with Genesis chapter 1, right? So it'll, um, well, let's go ahead and look at it. I'm sorry. Let's do it. Let's go ahead. Genesis chapter 1. If you want to go in and open with me. All right, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And this is a key phrase. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it's going to go through each day of creation. And God said, let there be and it was, right? So, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. So, you have this repetition, I think it's like 10 times. So, in the story of creation, the agent of creation, like what is making creation happen? God didn't go to Joanne's and buy a bunch of supplies and whip up earth, right? No, he speaks. His word goes out of his mouth, and the entire universe comes into being. Right? So that's the very first place we see the word of God being the agent of creation. Um, another hyperlink would be Psalm 33, 6. Go ahead and turn there with me. And again, John, of course, would have been so familiar with the Hebrew Bible, um, and so would have his audience. So a lot of these connections are a little bit lost on us. We tend to not spend as much time in, in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But his original audience would have caught on a lot, of these, um, a lot of these connections just more intuitively. All right, so Psalm 33, verse 6. says, the heavens were made by what? The word. The word of the Lord. And all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into the storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. So another very clear statement on the fact that the word of God is the agent of, of, of all of, of creation coming into being. Another hyperlink, just a few pages to the right, would be Proverbs chapter 8 which is a fascinating passage. Um, in Book of Proverbs, the wisdom of God is personified as Lady Wisdom. All right? And um, in Proverbs 8, this personified wisdom of God is connected with creation. So look at it, uh, chapter 8, verse 24. So wisdom is speaking. And it says, the Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation, before his works of long ago. I was formed before ancient times, from the beginning, before the earth began. I was born when there were no watery depths. Skip down to verse 27. I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean. Skip down to verse 30. I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. Now, this is significant because sometimes we read Proverbs. We're like, where is Jesus in Proverbs? Well, 
wisdom personified. Wisdom personified. Do you see that connection? Like the wisdom of God has actually become, not Lady Wisdom anymore, but, but actually the, 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 the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we have this connection between the Word of God, the wisdom of God, and, and the Word and wisdom of God um, actually taking on human form. Um, so just a lot of hyperlinks. Isaiah, if you just want to jot this down, Isaiah 55, where it talks about God's word will accomplish what he sent it to do. It will not return void. So you have God's word continually be pre- being presented as it's effective, like never fails. If God speaks something, it happens. And so this is just, when John presenting Jesus as the word, is, it's brilliant, it's brilliant, and it's beautiful, and it's taking all of these really important Old Testament images of the, 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 the word of God, the agent of creation, and attributing them to the person of Jesus Christ. So he, he is, is a lot loaded in, in that line. All right, so that's line one. We're doing so well on time. Okay. <laughs> the, in the beginning was the word and this is interesting, back to your chart here, or, or if you're looking at your actual Bible, verse 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so he was with God, meaning he's separate from God. If I said I was, I was with Stephanie today, you know, you would know very clearly I'm, I'm not Stephanie, I was with her, right? We're two different people, that's how we can be with each other, but... I am, so Jesus with God, he is God. So we have, he's separate, but he's the same, right? And so this is one of these major threads that we are going to begin seeing. I'm calling it Trinity, even though that's not a word you're ever going to find in the Bible. Um, it's a word theologians have come up with to express the nature of God, the three in one. And John, more than any other gospel, develops this Trinitarian aspect of God and how Jesus is God, but he's also the son of God, right? And so we're going to see a lot of that. This thread is woven throughout, so be looking for it, all right? Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. It's repetitive. It's just there to balance out that whole section. Give it nice, beautiful symmetry because this is poetry, and that's what you do when you're writing poetry. It's all got to look beautiful, all right? So let's move on into some of these boxes. We have one, two, three, and then we start over, and we have four, five, six. Now, the three boxes on the left mirror, or the three boxes on the right mirror the three boxes on the left. There's actually going to be a pattern. So in each of these sections, John's going to start out talking about an action of the word, or Jesus, a witness to the word, and a response to that witness, all right? So let's just jump in and you'll see it. Verses three through five. It says, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So he's talking again, he's building, he's, he's continuing with his creation theme. That's the big action that is in view here. And we have some more threads presented to us. So light is another big thread that you're going to see light. In fact, Jesus is going to call himself the light of the world. All right, so be looking for the thread of light all the way through the gospel. We are also, oh, I had a thread of darkness, but it, I don't know, it got lost as darkness does. I don't know. I don't know what happened to it. Um, I didn't have it Tuesday either. Uh, So there's light, and closely associated with light is life. And of course, we know from John's purpose statement that life is very important to him, because that's ultimately why he wrote this gospel, because he wants us to have it. And there's a very particular kind of life you have in Christ that you can't have anywhere else. And so be looking for this thread as well, the thread of life. So we got light, we got life. All right, so that's the action. Let's look at the witness, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from John, or sent from God, (laughs) not sent from John, 
sent from God, whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So you're going to read a lot about John the Baptist this week. He's a main player uh, in chapter 1. Um, we have some more threads. So this, this thread of a witness, John, John came as a witness to testify. Those words witness and testify actually have the same root in Greek, same word. He came as a witness to witness, basically is what it's saying. Um, but John is really, his whole gospel, kind of the whole tone of it, is, is a trial. Like, there's so much conflict and controversy, like, from the very beginning, right out the gate. And it's almost like Jesus is on trial the whole time. And so John is constantly calling witnesses to the stand to testify about the true identity of Jesus Christ. And what I love about it and what I, um, you know, it's women's Bible study. Do we really need to study just women? No, we don't. We can have co-ed Bible studies. Um, a, you're not going to have sports illustrations here. That's one reason to be in a women's Bible study. I don't know about you, but I get tired of football illustrations. You're not going to have any of those here. Number two, I can do things like this. I can point out to you the fact that a large number of the witnesses John calls to the stand to testify about who Jesus is are women. Starting from the very beginning, his mom says, do whatever he tells you to do. And then we move on and we have uh, uh, the Samaritan woman who, I mean, is this major evangelist in her, in her city. Uh, we have Martha, who's the first one in the narrative to directly declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And, of course, that mirrors John's purpose statement. It's a huge, huge important part in the gospel. We have Mary of Bethany, who doesn't verbally testify, but she's got that perfume bottle that she breaks, and Judas gets all mad, and Jesus says, look, she has anointed my body for burial. Talk about a witness in, in what she does. Um, and then, of course, Mary Magdalene is the very first witness to the resurrection. And, and these women are not merely describing what they see. They are declaring what it means. They are testifying to who Jesus is. So if any of you grew up in a church tradition where the role of women in the mission of the church is downplayed, Scripture doesn't downplay it. Scripture emphasizes the significant role that women play in the overall story of redemption, and it's really beautifully on display in the book of John. So you're not going to get that in a co-ed Bible study probably, but I love that here we are, women's Bible study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out stuff like that. It's a really beautiful book to see um, just the voice of women. All right, moving on. Uh, all right, so we have our, our action, he created. We have our witness, John the Baptist. And then we have our response, verse 9. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. So you have this estrangement between creator and created, which again, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis at all, you know that goes all the way back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3, you have humans deciding they're going to define good and evil on their own terms. In the very next scene, they're hiding from their creator, right? And so th that's the same thing that's playing out here. Jesus is going to come into his own world. He made it, but that world is not going to, um, to recognize him. Um, and I didn't make one for this, but that whole idea of um, recognizing him, John draws a sharp distinction between people who have sight and people who have insight. So a lot of people are going to see what Jesus does, and a lot of people are going to see what Jesus does. You know what I'm saying? So be looking for that as well. That's another thread that's woven through. Um, so it says, it continues on. It says, he came into his own, that's the Jews, Israel, and his own people did not receive him. If it ended there, it'd be very depressing, <laughs> but it doesn't end there. But 
to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. All right, so we've got a lot of threads that just emerged. Let me show them to you. All right, uh, let's see. Believe. Believe. We should know this is a big thread based on the purpose statement. He has literally written these things so we can do this right here. Believe. And so that's going to be a really, really important thread that he, I should have made it brighter than pink. It deserves a brighter color. It's really, really important in this gospel, the concept of, of, of believing. Um, another thread that's woven through is this, this concept of being children of God or born of God or born from above, which again, if John, John's riffing off of Genesis chapter 1 language, and, and we've talked before, if you've, if you've been in these studies before, about the importance of seed, offspring, children. What is, God, what is God doing from the very beginning of the Bible? He's forming a family. So he calls Adam and Eve to form a family, and ooh, that doesn't go well. And so then uh, he calls Abraham out, right? And he's going to form another family. And, and Abraham has Jacob. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. Hmm. Okay. Um, so... So Jacob has this family that becomes this nation of Israel. In Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And how did Israel do at the whole sonship thing? Terrible, rebellious child, breaks covenant, unfaithful, right? And so God, he never totally abandons the screwed up family. There's always a faithful remnant that he's like, all right, let's keep coming on. But, but he's, he's constantly about the business of he wants to create this family his family. And so you're going to see Jesus creating a, a new family. Those who are born from above, who are children of God, and they're children of God through believing in his son, Jesus Christ. So be looking for that thread as well. It's really, really, and I'll be pointing it out to you as we go along. Um, all right, let's move on. Okay, so that's the first column. Now we're moving to the second set of three. And it's almost as if John, like, He's like, all right, I told the story. Let's back up and tell it again from a little bit different perspective, all right? So verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, that word dwelt means, and I've just been talking. Let me see where I am on my notes so I don't miss a bunch of things. All right, I'm like, way. All right, there we go. Uh, that word dwell literally means pitch a tent, pitch a tent. Um, again, not everybody in this room is going to be familiar with Old Testament imagery, but a few of you have been at this a lot of years. Do you know of any significant tent in the, in the Old Testament? Tabernacle, that's right, the tabernacle. Um, and for, for those of you who aren't familiar, the tabernacle was like this, kind of like this hot spot of God's presence. Right, so earth was like so corrupt and gross, like the beautiful, pure, holy presence of God couldn't just like come down and hang out, right? So he has people build this tabernacle so he could come down and hang out, right? And his glory would appear there at the tabernacle. It's like this little hot spot on earth of, of God's presence and his glory. So verse 14 is John's Christmas narrative, right? One sentence. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have observed his glory. Well, of course he's going to talk about glory because Jesus is a tabernacle and the tabernacle is where God's glory is, right? So we have, we have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. Do you guys know what book of the Bible the tabernacle comes into play? Anybody? Exodus, that's right. So, so the first three strophes are told from the perspective of Genesis. And now he's kind of shifted a little bit. And the second three strophes are, are told from, the, he's, he's pulling in Exodus imagery. All right? So he's pulling in imagery from the tabernacle. But then there's this whole grace and truth. Grace and truth, grace and truth. He's going to mention it again. 
And I want to show you where he's getting this. This isn't as obvious. Um, I didn't think of this myself, but I came across it in a commentary. and thought, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. All right, so Exodus 34. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can just listen. This takes place right after the whole golden calf fiasco. All right, so Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He takes way too long. The people get antsy, and so they they create this idol, and they worship it. Moses is coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and he hears the people having this huge party. He's like, what's going on? He realizes that they have built this calf, and he's so mad, he throws the tablets down, and they shatter at the foot of the mountain. And so now he's going up for tablets number two (laughs) to to get them redone. All right, so he's going back up to the mountain. Exodus chapter 34, um, let's see, let's look at verses, verse 5. It says, the Lord, so Moses on the mountain, the Lord came down in a cloud. He stood with him there, and God proclaimed his name. Now that means that God is about to tell Moses what he's like, his character, his attributes. All right, so he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Now that is a whole mouthful of Old Testament words that mean grace. Grace. So we have grace and we have truth side by side, as God, Yahweh, is declaring to Moses who he really is. And then you get John saying, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of what? Grace and truth. Just like Yahweh is revealing himself to be throughout the whole storyline of the Bible, and here we have it embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. It's so cool. Are these connections cool? Am I the only one that thinks these are like, whoa, I'm like mind blown here. I think it's amazing. All right, so we have some more threads. Um, So we have grace, well, glory. So glory is another word you're going to see repeated over and over. All right, so glory would mean um, kind of the the, the weightiness. Um, Also, honor plays into glory. Um, And then grace and truth. Be looking for those. Be looking for evident. Lots of grace and truth that are woven throughout the Gospel of John. So those are some more threads to be on the lookout for. All right, moving on to verse 15. John testified concerning him. What? I thought we already saw John. John already testified. Why is John testifying again? I don't know about you, but when I've always read this, I've thought this is so repetitive. This is a little ridiculous, right? He already introduced John to us in 6 through 8. Why is he repeating the same thing? Well, again, when you see repetition like that, especially when it's a poem, you're like, oh, he's trying to do a, st- a structure here. There, there, there's, a, there's a format, right? And the structure is action, witness, response. So we've had the action. He's tabernacled among us. Now we have the witness again. And it's still John. <laughs> um, it's kind of cool because the first time John is mentioned, we're told that he testified. We aren't told what he said. So here we have a little bit of a difference in that we're we're given something he actually said about Jesus, which is the one coming after me, verse 15, ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So ranks ahead and existed before. Those are your key phrases there. He's he's stressing the preeminence and preexistence of Jesus. verses 16 and 17. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is the response. This is the response, obviously, of those who believe, right? We have, we have, we have received grace upon grace grace. Um, I had a professor 
in seminary who, when he taught through this prologue, he talked about that image of grace upon grace. It's, it literally is like grace one after the other, grace one after the other. And he talked about how it's, it's the visual you, 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 you could get there is the, um, the waves of the ocean, right? Just one. There's, you always know another's coming, right? And I was thinking this week about how that's also a very common metaphor for grief, isn't it? Where grief is like waves. It's like you have sorrow upon sorrow, and loneliness upon loneliness, and a memory upon the It like just dies down, and then another one comes. And um, I was just thinking about those two metaphors. Grief, like the waves of the ocean, and grace, like the waves of the ocean. And just the reality that for every wave of grief, there's a bigger, stronger wave of grace right behind it. And I love that. That's, that's what we have in Christ. That's one aspect of the life that we have in him, is no matter how many waves of grief are crashing, waves of grace are crashing as well. And um, I just thought that was a beautiful picture, just really ministered to me this week, thinking about the relationship between, between the two of those. Um, I forgot a thread. Observed. It says, we have, we have seen his glory. So observing, seeing, like I told you, some people have sight and others have insight. Some people see all the things, but they don't really see. So that's another, another thread. Um, when he says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth uh, were given through Jesus Christ. Um, what he's saying there is that the law was a beautiful expression of God's grace, a beautiful expression of God's partnership with humans, Problem is, we can't keep it very well, right? So it, it's also very exposing of our unfaithfulness. And so in Jesus, we have something far better. Not that the law was bad. The law is beautiful, right? But we have something far better in him because as the embodiment of God's grace and truth, he fulfills the law and provides a way for us to meet its demands as well as we unite our life with his life. And, and so that's why um, what John's saying here is, yeah, the law was great, but whoa, this is so much better. This is so much better. Um, let's see, what are we doing on time? All right, I want to nerd out with you for just a minute. All right, so I've, I've told you about this structure. So you have the first three strophes, action, witness, response, told from the perspective of creation and the book of Genesis. And then he starts over, and you have strophes three, uh, four, five, and six on the right-hand column, um, action, witness, response, told from the perspective of Exodus and the incarnation. So that in itself is just, a, it's beautiful, all right? Now, John, uh, he's obviously given us these connections with Genesis chapter one. But if you've ever studied Genesis chapter one, and we did it a long time ago, we're going to have to do it again sometime. But it is arranged in six strophes as well, corresponding with the six days of creation. And you have two columns of three. You have three of, three of the days God is forming the earth, and three of the days God is filling the earth. So, coincidence? Absolutely not, because John started his gospel with the exact same words that Genesis 1 has started with. So he, he is mimicking this structure. Now, there's a big difference, though, because in Genesis chapter 1, well, it actually goes in a little bit into chapter 2, there's a seventh strophe or a seventh section corresponding to the seventh day of creation. All right, so I want you to look at that with me. If, if, if you want to, you can just listen. All right, so Genesis, end of Genesis chapter 1, moving into Genesis ch chapter 2. Um, yeah, actually, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. This is the seventh section, seventh strophe of, of this poem. It said, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. If you have an ESV, and I think a few other translations say finished, they were finished, on the seventh day, God had finished or completed or accomplished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. So, 
we're thinking, okay, John is obviously mimicking the structure of Genesis chapter 1, but there's no seventh. Is there anywhere in the book of John that uses this same language of finished or completed or accomplished? Hmm. Right? So that's what we're, that's what we're kind of thinking. And some of you are already sitting there and you're like, oh, yeah, there it is. You're already on to me. All right? So... John, we don't need to look these up. John, I'm going to throw them at you. John 4.34 says, my, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish or complete or accomplish his work. John 5.36, Jesus says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish or finish bear witness to me. And these, of course, are all leading up to the ultimate thing that Jesus says as he is hanging on the cross in his dying moment it's three words in English it's only one word in Greek finished finished completed accomplished he cries out that one word that John records the other the synoptics record some other words but John just that's the only other than Jesus asking for the, the, the vinegar, it's the only thing John records. Jesus saying from the cross, finished. Now this a really, 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 really smart lady who I, I only made it through like the first third of her book because it was like way over my head. Um, but her whole, her whole thing is, is, is analyzing the structure of John's gospel. And I, this one quote I'm about to read to you is like one of the only things I understood. <laughs> but it's really beautiful, okay? It's really beautiful. So it's a lady named Mary Coley. She's actually um, a Catholic scholar. But she says this. She says, The sixth structure of the prologue, like the six days of creation in Genesis, requires one final act to bring it to completion. The act begins in chapter 1, verse 19, as the gospel narrative of God's final work to be accomplished in the life of death and death of Jesus now begins. In other words, the entire gospel is the seventh day. The entire gospel is the seventh day. The entire gospel is Jesus finishing the work that his father has called him. And what will this work lead to? Well, it leads to the ultimate rest of all of God's people in the new heaven and the new earth, this new family, children of God, born from above, finished. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, and we're just in like the first 18 verses, you guys. It's just, it's stunning. It's so stunning. All right, let's finish it up. Uh, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, all right? So if you read through the whole Bible, God's presence always has to be mediated or people will die, all right? So no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. So there's that Trinity language again. So he is God, but he's also really, really close to God, close to the Father, right? Um, he has revealed. Now, on your sheet here, I just have a dot, dot, dot. Now, our English translations put him at the end of that. has to give it an object, but in the original, it's just he has revealed. He leaves it open. Like, he doesn't even finish the sentence because, again, the entire gospel is, is showing us what, what has he revealed. Revealed what? Revealed who? Well, let me tell you, John says. Keep reading. I'm going to show you what and who and how he has revealed. Um, so just really, really beautiful structure. I think one really important takeaway, just really, really practical for all of us, because this has been a little heady tonight. I wanted to show you the beauty of, of, of how this is arranged. Um, but a really important question people ask is, what is God like? What is God like? How do, how do, how do I even know what God is like? And of course, you can look at nature and creation and, and get some information, but it leaves a lot of blanks to fill in, right? Um, and, I mean, if you're from a, a more uh, Reformed Protestant tradition, right, it would be like, well, the scriptures tell you what God is like. Sola Scriptura, right? 
and you hand somebody a Bible, here, this is what God is like, and they're like, um, okay, right? Like, I don't know, it's kind of big and kind of long, and there's that whole, like, Leviticus part and Ezekiel, and I will never know what those things mean, right? Like, I love that answer. Yes, Scripture tells us what God is like, but I think we can do better. How do we know what God is like? Jesus reveals what God is like. And so if you know someone or if you are someone that's just trying to, like, get the basics of, like, what is God like? Where do you go? Where do you send them? You send them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you say, you, you get to know Jesus. And you, you, you observe how he talked. And you observe how he treated people. And you observe how he treated the people everyone treated terribly. You observe how he, oh, he messed with all the power structures of his day. You observe the works and the words and the manners of Jesus, and that is how you will know what God is like. And that's a really, I think, just like really practical takeaway and, and one thing I love about what this study is going to do for us. So um, rest of chapter one, we're out of time. <laughs> There's going to be, um, just to give you just a little idea of, of, of John's, He's just got that beautiful mind thing going. So in chapter 1, there's seven titles of Jesus that are spoken. That's going to be followed by seven signs of Jesus. We're going to have seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the... And then there are, there are I am statements that stand alone. It's just I am, period. Guess how many of those there are? Seven, all right, so we're dealing with a genius here, all right, this, this, this book of the Bible is beautiful, um, and so hopefully we'll get to put on that scuba, deer, scuba gear and, and, and really see some of that beauty and, and peel back, not all of the layers, we don't have enough weeks for that, but we'll get to peel back a few, so any questions on what we talked about tonight or where we're headed or, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is a really good question. And honestly, I had that thought this week when I was looking at the differences. And we will. I'm going to do a lot of reading on that. I, I'm, and we may not ever have an answer. I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't know. But you would think that it would appear. So I'm going to come back to you. And I don't know which week we cover Lazarus. But I'm very curious about that as well. So I'm going to do some reading and research. Yeah, good one. Anybody else? All right. Well, I will see you guys back here next week. Bring some friends along. Um, this is an open study. Like, anytime you can come and go. We're super chill. We sort of have table assignments, so kind of find the same people each week just so we can know if you're, you know, here or not. But otherwise, we're, we're really laid back here. All right? <laughs>